This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Improvised Investigation. The Strava Revelation. Scene Transitions. And The Christie Disappearance. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful, so you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives, like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R or leave immediately for your local game store before it's taken over by the hated British. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, look at that, Robin. The pantry is stocked with four different kinds of Doritos. All the dice are laid out, although there's only a single D6 at every place. And the miniatures have already been pre-primed, suitable for painting. It's as though someone has done thoughtful, helpful planning. Uh, Is that perhaps the topic of the gaming hut? Because... Chris Sellers, Patreon backer, has asked us, Gumshoe seems to require a lot more pre-planning by the GM than a non-investigative game, because there are questions that need to be posed, which need to have predetermined answers, which should lead to the discovery of a twist. Pause for Chris Sellers to take a breath. Is there a way to be more improvisational in Gumshoe? Robin, uh, that sounds like one of those questions that is a sales technique that invites you to say yes. Right. Or uh, invites you to uh, say, hey... Actually, uh, despite impressions, uh, gumshoe is super easy to improvise, and we're going to tell you how to do that. So I would much rather improv a gumshoe game than an F20 game or something else with complicated mechanics or I have to prepare a, uh, a fight scene, the tactical options and the stats for all the creatures and stuff. Uh, gumshoe has super easy uh, stats for uh, foes if they're even going to fight any foes this week. And the structure that you uh, lay out there, Chris, is really all you need to get started is uh, what mystery are the PCs going to investigate? And then what is it going to look like at the beginning? And what is going to what's a surprise that they're going to encounter? And that's just inherent to the nature of a mystery, right? The mystery has to be a surprise. Yeah. I mean, that, otherwise, it's not a mystery. It's uh, I'll bet that there's Grendel in that Grendel cave labeled Grendel is here. Exactly. And so all you need is a concept. And uh, you have to do much less work than you would have to do if you're creating a full published style scenario. Because the thing about the scenarios that we write for you is that we've written them for you. And we have to make them understandable in a format that will allow someone else to run them. But if you're just making something up uh, yourself, you can make a whole bunch of that up as you go along. And this is sort of a, a perception that we realize we have to uh, combat a little. I had a recent page xx column about precisely this Uh, for example the structure that you're given for a typical scenario in any of the different games and each of them has a slightly different structure is not something that you need to be working toward while you improvise except to sort of know in the back of your head that this is kind of how it goes so an ashen stars adventure leads to a not to a twist so much as a moral dilemma that has to be solved whereas Uh, A Trail of Cthulhu uh, scenario uh, runs to a horrible cosmic uh, alien truth. 
uh, that then blast the the, uh, the sanity of, of the character. So as long as you have that, uh, you're good to go, and you can start making stuff up as you go along. Ken, how how do you go about once you've got the premise making stuff up? Well, um, a lot of it uh, when uh, Chris Sellers says it should lead to the discovery of a twist. A lot of times you can leave that up to the players. The players, in the course of their speculating, assuming that you know uh, that they need to get to the Grendel Cave or they need to um, discover that the robot that built the planet has gone mad or or the sort of fundamental kicker of the story, you can then leave it up to the players to figure out how they got there and they will surprise you and appall you with their ingenuity, probably in equal amounts. So the twist can in an improv gumshoe game most often be left up to the players. As long as you have a strong sense of what is the mystery or what is the solution or what is the end state that you're attempting to reach over the course of the game. And uh, in a game like Knights Black Agents, a lot of times, you know, players are going to have so many possible approaches to the mystery that trying to pre-plan it is actively a waste of time and actively makes the game worse. I would argue that in a Knights Black Agents sort of a scenario, outside the sort of very large constraints that you see in something like Sentries or you see in something like the Boxman and Zelazny Quartet, uh, the Dracula dossier is sort of a, a beautiful document of how to run uh, a Knights Black Agents in that be prepared with a bunch of possibilities and be prepared to roll with wherever the players go, but know that at some point, Dracula is going to rip your head off. Right. In fact, uh, to have a little aside here, this is one of the problems that our uh, our pal and colleague uh, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan is having doing the uh, Knights Black Agents uh, Gumshoe uh, One to One game, which is that the characters in that have so many choices that they can make that it is uh, harder to constrain them within the very tight format of Gumshoe One to One, which is the part of the gumshoe uh, line that I would argue is hard to improvise yeah. because you are as GM on stage half the time and, and the player is on stage the, the other half the time. So it's hard to make stuff up on the go for that. But for regular multiplayer gumshoe, so set up the mystery at the beginning and the, the published adventures have to go through a lot of work to make sure that the principle of gumshoe, which is that uh, wherever you look for a piece of, uh, information that is needed to draw you through the story is somewhere there for the players to get here you can just uh as they come up with things to find information that logically would lead somewhere let them go there and so Mm -hmm. they will uh then create the scenes by suggestion by saying okay so the invisible assassin is uh knocking off uh, different members of the silver cartel at christmas time how, how do we find out who the members of the Silver Cartel are and what connects them other than their membership in the cartel? Uh, well, let's head down to the newspaper office and to the head of the business section who can tell us all about the head of the Silver Cartel. When you're writing a published scenario, you have to think of all of that and anticipate ahead of time what they would do, and they might not do that. Whereas when they're improvising, as, as we're suggesting, let the players come up with the thing, and then uh, you need uh, to quickly come up with, okay... That sounds reasonable. They go down to the newspaper office to find a business reporter. All you really need is a name and uh, something from your list of uh, you know quirky characters that you would remember the, him uh, or her by. So uh, have a list of names available that make sense, whatever the setting is, whether it's uh, Romanian names if they're uh, in Eastern Europe uh, in Knights Black Agents or uh, just uh, regular names of uh, people off the street as you would get in Fear Itself or the modern versions of uh, The Yellow King, and then come up with a uh, quirk of that uh, the character who provides them that information. And you can either play to or against type. So if you are feeling like you uh, want to do an obvious choice, you can have the cynical and bittered a uh, newspaper man who smells of uh, cigarettes and bourbon, rail uh, whiskey <laughs> and uh, and cigarettes, uh, or you could have the uh, you could turn that on its head and have the uh, ambitious young uh, reporter who has not yet been jaded by the uh, uh, rigors of Twitter, whatever it is that you have, and then present that character to them, and then it just turns into a dialogue scene between uh, them and the, uh, the between your character and and the player characters, and then once. One of them asks a question that should logically lead uh, somewhere to the, oh, well, you know, she knows that the uh, the silver cartel all have a tontine together and that they uh, struck the agreement in Colorado. Uh, okay, well, it's time to hop on a plane and get to Colorado and find out exactly why the invisible assassin is, is out to get them. And of course, 
as invisible assassins are wont to do, uh, the invisible assassin got on the plane uh, without even going through a gate check, which is... Right. Uh, That's the worst. That is the worst. Uh, invisible people in general are the worst. And then yeah. there you go. You can either then have the invisible assassin. There's not a lot in the literature of invisible people who just go around doing good. Well, that's because we. You that's that? they, they're too humble to say so. Ah, there might be 99 right. They're good so invisible, invisible people. Right. For but every... it's always the jerks that get the credit, exactly. get, the, get the headlines. Yeah. That makes sense. Isn't that just the way? My apologies to all the good invisible people who are out there listening. Keep being good. Right. And so, uh, and that's an example, actually, of how you can let your imagination go crazy. And it's like, Oh, well, wait a minute. What if there are good invisible people chasing the invisible assassin? And that's a, okay, so you are, uh, you know, you're on the plane and the, the plane is, uh, uh, struck by lightning and there's a, a bomb and then suddenly the bomb has been diffused by unknown means and you go up and talk to the, uh, the pilot and something weird happened and it's like, wow, man, maybe once we get off the plane, maybe we better hit the books and see if anything like this has ever happened again. And then you, go to the library and oh sure enough here's the the legion of the invisible the the good guy invisible mormons who are uh, secretly trying to protect mankind from the yellow sign let's go find them and talk to them about this over cartel right and maybe it's one of theirs uh th that has decided to go a little bit off the reservation because they know that the silver cartel are actually cultists of haster and that they are trying to imminentize haster and you know the normal invisible people are like oh no we're just going to go around and do good and make the world better so that no one can have haster in their heart but one guy one, you know, uh, bad Jedi is out there saying, or we could just kill all the Haster cultists because we are invisible. That'd work. And, oh, but that's not our way. Well, you're invisible. You can't really stop me. Bye. So you have a, a, a new element of the story that, you know, in this case, Robin and I improvised by me being a jerk, but your players are at least as big a jerk as I am, <laughs> only collectively. <laughs> <laughs> Collectively, anyway. Yeah, right. <laughs> Five players equals one can. Equals one can. By and large, that's the rough equivalency. I've been in groups where <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm beset by two players and then the other three gang up on me. It's like a currency rate. It, it goes up and down over yeah, time. It goes up and down. It depends. Um, and then, so the, uh, other thing that, uh, you can do, uh, to improvise, to sort of drag this back on the topic instead of do the invisible, uh, Mormon Zadokim, which is a great topic, by the way. Invisible is, Mormons um, are the best Mormons when they knock on your door in the morning. You don't even say they're there. That, that, that's a little, that's a little messed up, frankly. But the, the, the notion is that if the players, uh, meet these NPCs that you're throwing into their path and they really get into one and they like dealing with them and they're interested by it, that means you can put more information in their path via that person. And that feels more organic than just, uh, you go to the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker, and each one has a third of the clue. Look at you. You've collected plot coupons like a hero. Well, you go to the butcher. The butcher's kind of boring and, and, and dangerous looking as piggy cannibalized. And so they're like, we got our eyes on you. You go to the baker. The baker's terrific. She's a lovely woman. She's got uh, four adopted kids that she's feeding. She works at the homeless shelter. She's terrific. And you're like, oh, we love the baker. We think she's terrific. And you want to keep going to the baker and um, uh, because you suspect the butcher is going to kill and eat uh, everyone in the neighborhood so she can become a character and you can give her the candlestick maker clue. And that poor guy's never comes on stage at all because that interaction with the baker as they deepened that friendship became important. And then you can decide, is she actually, you know, um, uh, in league with uh, 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 an evil cult? Is she actually a vampire? Is she actually as innocent as she looks? And in, sure enough, the butcher is going to come and chop everyone up uh, for his um, uh, cannibal gods. Or is it something else that's going on? Maybe the butcher just looks that way because he's been fighting demons and he's got that thousand yard stare that all the player characters have. Yeah. And so they have to gang up all of them, including the guy that they don't like. Yeah, it turns out it's a, it's a baker in service of the East God. Right. Um, another thing that you want to have uh, sort of in pocket, even just as like a one line in your notes, is what is something that can come at the players uh, when uh, they've been doing a whole lot of investigation and hitting the books and being cautious and some excitement or terror is needed. And that, of course, in the schema of Gumshoe Adventures is the antagonist reaction. So uh, what is it that uh, can become aware of the uh, player characters and go at them when you need a jolt of something? And uh, if the players are uh, happily uh, super engaged with all of the investigation stuff and very happy to be proceeding uh, without being uh, threatened or jolted, uh, don't do that. 
Uh, but when uh, things start to flag, uh, when they're uh, hunkering down or if they're speculating too much without going out and gathering more information, uh, look for a way to uh, jack up the excitement. And of course, certain gumshoe games are more about the excite uh, that sort of excitement than, than others. So in Knights Black Agents, uh, you're probably going to have a uh, Renfield coming through the door with an Uzi sooner than you might uh, say even in Yellow King. Yeah, that um, that is another sort of a, a thing to just have in your hip pocket is any sort of tension raiser. And that can be uh, in a game like Ashen Stars. It might just be, oh, the, the engines are beginning to decay because of the ion field. It's not anything that anyone's doing. It's just a nature of being in orbit around this planet. Or in a game like uh, uh, Nice Black Agents, it's, you know, a, a, a wet works team that the Mossad has sent after you because they don't like your face. Or in Trail of Cthulhu, it is yet another demonic entity summoned out of the stars by this guy who you're pestering because he's just trying to murder a baker. And then so there's you can have a lot of sort of little things in your pocket that you think that'd be a fun encounter. That would be a, a dangerous thing to have happen. And if things flag in the course of the uh, scenario that you're improving, Add in that uh, that thickener, right? It's like you're making a sauce. Right. And in, a, in an X-Files episode, the classic way of doing that is the monster claims another victim. Uh, because right. particularly in episodes written by Chris Carter, uh, the player characters in X-Files do almost no investigating. Yeah. <laughs> they just wait around in a hotel for more victims to show up. And, and eventually the pattern falls out. Right. So uh, so those are definitely not sandbox players in, in X-Files, but uh, you can definitely uh, steal that structural uh, conceit, even if your players uh, are more active in actually discovering things over the course of an investigation. Uh, well, I think uh, we can now pronounce that we have thoroughly improvised our way through this uh, question and found that uh, the answer to the mystery is that, uh, I don't know, the friends we met along the way? Anyway, no, the answer to the mystery is the commercial we met along the way. There is, by certain unreliable and maddening account, and now, by your own dreadful experience, a city on the eastern seaboard of the United States in northern Massachusetts. You do not recall seeing it on maps when you were growing up? No one of your acquaintance ever admitted coming from that place. Now you find yourself living within its eerie confines. A city of windowless cyclopean skyscrapers. Of crumbling Baroque buildings. And ruins that must impossibly predate human habitation in this part of the world. Welcome to Cthulhu City. A surreal nightmare supplement for Trail of Cthulhu. From your deceptively kindly mayor of Terror Town, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. And the cosmically indifferent minds at Pelgrane Press. Evade the watchful eyes of cultish authorities. Pursue intrigue and action down the city's twisted streets. And defy the will of the living gods. In, in Cthulhu, Cthulhu City. You underwent a retinal scan. You submitted yourself to fingerprinting. You went through a background check more rigorous than the one currently used by the White House. And that entitles you to listen to the Tradecraft Hut. This week in the Tradecraft Hut, we're going to talk about something that a whole bunch of you forwarded to both of us, uh, which is the uh, recent news story that a, an Australian student of security affairs uh, discovered that the Strava Fitness app, which periodically posts heat maps of user activity of people running around being healthy, uh, jogging, I guess, mostly. They post location maps, which look like uh, like heat maps, and thereby uh, revealed, uh, and we'll determine what the value of revealed is in a second, the location of many putatively secret military bases, uh, many, but not all of them American, around the globe, because you could see where presumably um, military officials or uh, civilian security officials were out jogging that day because they didn't turn on their privacy settings, and there you go, you could see not only where the base is in the middle of nowhere in Somalia or Afghanistan, but you could also see uh, where the perimeter is that you would be most likely uh, to run. So, Ken, how secret were these bases, in fact? Well, I mean, it depends. I mean, secret is always a relative matter. There's secret from whom is the question. Uh, certainly, many of them were secret from putative reporters for national security uh, concerns. 
I assume at least some of them were secret from our uh, more primitive national adversaries. I, I, I don't think that ISIS necessarily knew where our bases in Afghanistan were. So I mean, some got- of the poo-pooing may then have been the retroactive poo-pooing of security officials right. who want to assure us. That uh, nothing was breached, even if it was. They didn't make a terrible, stupid mistake. Right. And certainly any any, uh, uh, major adversary like Russia or China with satellite uh, details, with all the other, uh, you know, with the the stuff that they've uh, mined out of Snowden and other um, uh, traders, they've probably got huge amounts of data on military personnel. I mean, China dumped the whole OPM database into their uh, voracious maw. So I don't think there's anything that a federal employee does in, a, in, in America that's secret from China now, um, or a federal employee that does o- all around the world. Maybe some of the specific locations, like is that perimeter fence a hundred meters this way or a hundred meters that way? That I think is the sort of thing that is, uh, tactically useful information if you're targeting a base, but China and Russia by and large are not targeting our bases. Um, again, it, 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 ISIS has got a fairly savvy social media arm, but how good they are at the sort of drill down work that you need. Uh, for example, um, you can, using the Strava leaderboard system, find the names of people who are making those heat map traces. And Strava says you can't do it, but they've done a very bad job of anonymizing their data. So people in Australia, people in the Ukraine, um, uh, we're able to basically dump out, you know, lists of names. The Guardian, of course, being the Guardian, published the names of CIA contractors at the base in Afghanistan. So, so a lot of that data are out there and available, you know, certainly available to the Russians because that's what they do. Available probably the North Koreans who are uh, hacking uh, savvy dudes. And that's the sort of thing that could indeed be sold on on a piecemeal basis. And so that's the real security threat is not, oh, they found that base in Syria. Pretty much, I think, if there's an airfield in Syria, you can find it by backtracking the planes that land there. But the names of the guys running around, that's something that was not necessarily an open secret. That was something that actually is a breach and that is now out there thanks to a combination of Strava being terrible at anonymizing, whoever ran security for that base being really terrible at doing their job, and uh, the fact that you know, information's going to sneak out through the crevices. And at some point, um, you either get to choose between wearing a fitness app and going and killing um, uh, dangerous foreigners for your country. Right. And and so the, the Uber point here is that once again, the fail point in a security system is the people. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Humans are always the flaw. That's literally true of every system, by the way, not just security systems. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, just as uh, very highest level officials don't know how email works. And, you know, John Tedesca can click on a phishing link mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, if you'd asked probably anybody who was running around these bases, oh, if you turned off your privacy, they would, oh, right, of course I should. Yeah, right. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, I did that yesterday. Click. Mm-hmm. You know, people are just used to the complacency of using uh, all of their devices and all of their modern conveniences and that uh, uh, being uh, secure in all of these environments requires uh, you to submit to serious inconvenience. So how do we take this either fun or terrifying uh, story, depending on whether you're running one of those trails and there's a rocket propelled grenade anywhere near you? uh, How do we take this story and then uh, use it as the kernel for a uh, Knights Black Agents or other uh, modern espionage uh, scenario or scene within a scenario. I think one of the things that you can you can do with it is just use this as yet another example of what a dedicated Knights Black agents uh, agent can get. That they can, you know, you just be be woke to the possibility that they can say, "I'm going to hack into the social media of these uh, of these guys and see if this base has got someone who didn't turn off his privacy settings." And you're like, "Yeah, that is a legitimate thing that you can do." Certainly, if you're a a super spy in the uh, nice black agents world, another thing you can do, of course, is you start running regressions on all of that data. You start doing traffic analysis, and you say that guy is running the perimeter at that base at about 20 miles an hour. Uh, according to his times, that seems high. Uh, maybe he's a Renfield or maybe Usain Bolt is out fighting for America. I mean, those are our two choices. So you maybe can sort of sort out some of the data that seem anomalous or there's a, there's a, a fitness app, um, uh, that, you know, they, they go up a lot of the fitness app trails go up into this spot in the Balkan Hills and then they disappear. And it's like, 
what does that mean? Is there a weird Wi-Fi spot? Is that is that a really secret base and everyone turns off their fitness app when they get in? Or is it a thing where they run up there and something eats them? And then maybe, you know, uh, the next morning, the fitness trail comes back down from the base. And so there's a, a gap somewhere. And if this is the sort of thing that, again, base security would in theory, in theory be looking at. But since we've demonstrated base security has no idea this exists, it's the sort of thing that might give an investigator a glimpse into something going on at the base that the base authorities um, a don't know is going on and B will deny until they're blue in the face could be going on because they don't want to look like the chumps they are. Right. Player characters and Knights Black Agents are uh, by default on the run, uh, mm-hmm. often somewhere they didn't expect to be. So uh, you could envision a scene where someone uses their uh, uh, computer surveillance skills to uh, look up the latest uh, Strava heat map before they uh, clamped down and got buys at all the bases and, oh, well, I'm in... Uh, I'm I'm here. Where's the nearest uh, a likely American base? Well, it's over there. Well, let's let's see if I can get over there before the things that are chasing me uh, kill me. Right. So that but at the very least, let's get the Marines to shoot at it instead of yes. me. And then on the other <laughs> hand, there's the idea that uh, oh well, this this is an enemy base. This is a vampire-controlled base. So let's look up where the perimeter is, and this will give me an advantage. You know, I'll be able to apply this to my infiltration uh, uh, test. And uh, so you have both. Uh, the option of shelter and the option of something to break into. And to move back to the the broader point about uh, security is always full of holes because people are are, uh, uh, lazy and make mistakes, that this is also just something you can use as an object lesson to say to players, uh, I don't know if your players are overly cautious in this way, but it's sometimes uh, difficult for me to get the players to do the obvious movie spy thriller thing and infiltrate the complex because they're just, oh well this is a these are skilled mercenaries this these guys are 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 from blackwater they're not going to make any mistakes we can't possibly get in there and it's like no 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 it's they're they're like the real world or like movies they're both the same there's holes in the thing and your job as super duper competent uh, people is to uh, get through those uh, mistakes so you can say uh, oh, no, but you've called up this map, and here you go. They've made this big mistake. I bet even if they've closed this hole, there's probably another one that you can take advantage of. And even if they closed the hole, they didn't relocate the base. The map is still true. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, again, it, you, you've got a, a base with a 100 trained CIA special action division operators. It only takes one meathead to go jogging and ruin it for everybody. So are you saying, yeah, the average uh, uh, Blackwater uh, XE ultra security magic mercenaries are super competent and dangerous, but it's a bell curve like everything else in life. Is the dumbest guy on that base smarter than the smartest guy in our party? And the answer is probably no, A, because you're player characters, and B, because people are terrifyingly dumb. And you can also just use this as the entire premise of a scenario in which the you know new month's worth of uh, heat mapping from the Strava app appears. And, oh, lo-, lo and behold, there's a completely unknown base. And indeed, as mentioned earlier, the people running the uh, the track there are, are running at inhumanly fast speeds. And there's uh, also some strange... Uh, oh, that's really weird. The running trail looks like they sort of uh, hit one particular point and then vanish. And then they reappear later on. There's like a, a blank spot. And it's not that they're, you know, just running a, a loop and turning around. It's something something weird in quantum is happening. Uh, and guess what? We have an alert that there's some quantum threat happening that we got to go check out. And so check out this new weird base that we discovered through the fitness app can itself be the kernel of a scenario. And the other uh, possibility is that... Um uh, while I'm sure the good people at Strava just want to uh, make a mint off other people doing exercise, like God intended, if you assume a uh, evil Bond villainy tech billionaire who has created apps like this for all kinds of his foes, um, you can track people's you know GPS data if they've activated the uh, GPS system in their car. You can track all manner of stuff through social media usage. Let's just say there's some. A uh, creepy, weird, asocial, strange affect tech billionaire out there, um, uh, maybe with an, uh, a strange set of knees and he's going around and he happens to have an app that is super popular with members of the press 
or members of the uh, fancy cat breeding society or anything else that he might be trying to take control of or, in, or infiltrate. That's how he's gathering the information. And you, the player characters, stumble on the fact that this guy's a creepy weirdo. And you like are you, know, you think you're safe and you see a guy's checking his phone and you catch a look at the screen. and Oh, he's called up the um, uh, creepy weirdo app. And now you're like, oh, does he infiltrate? Has he just got tools here so it can be a tool for paranoia it can give you a a sort of a structure by which the bad guy uh, influences people and it can be give you a structure for how the the bad guy gets all this intel that he has and and seems to know everything that's happening everywhere in the world and speaking of uh installing a twist in the scenario that you're improvising uh the initial idea could be go and find out uh, what's up with this new base that's just appeared on Strava with this weird uh, pattern. In this case, it's uh, not that there's a weird gap in it, but that it has a, a very peculiarly shaped running track. Uh, and so if go find out what this is and you get there, there's no military base at all. It's just someone has been running in this weirdo pattern. And then you check all of the other uh, heat maps to find other weirdo patterns. And, oh, wait, someone is using Strava to uh, create these uh, runes in the earth all across the earth in all of these different uh, strange locations. And, oh, could this be some sort of world-spanning incantation using the power of this Fitbit app? We'd better go find out where the next uh, obvious place on the map is, where the next uh, uh, running is going to occur, uh, just in case there's some sort of great working that we need to shut down. Right. They're, they're, uh, they're running out the 36 goetic sigils, and you're, you've figured it out at, tw- at you know 31 or 32, and you're like, oh, man, yeah. uh, we only got four more sigils before they've opened the doors to all the demons in hell. Right. Or, or they could be Nazca lines. That would be fun as well. Yeah, that could be fun. Um, I like the idea that you uh, go out there and what is on the heat map differs starkly from what is there on the ground that you go out there and the heat map shows, you know, nothing. And maybe it was recording stuff from the future. Maybe that that's where the federal government will build the time machine in the year uh, 2094. Um, uh, that, um, uh, President Malia Obama Jr. has has set up the time machine there, and and that's uh, the the guys who are guarding the time machine. Their apps are accidentally transmitting through quantum dipole entanglement back to the present. You you could find all manner of things with a with an app uh, that displays stuff that isn't there. I mean, a million explanations, right? Yep, you could have uh, animals with chips in them that uh, mimic the uh, parts of your smartphone that respond to the app, and so it's like, oh wait, why are all of the cheetahs? in this nature preserve all running in this geometrical pattern is mm-hmm. is this anything to be concerned about yeah there is there's is the biotagging that people do to migratory birds and to other kinds of endangered species that would be a fun thing for the apps to suddenly start showing patterns and you're like is aquaman doing this yeah. is <laughs> something else doing this is um uh, calling all the wild beasts out to come lick his hands what's going on we, we all know that canada geese are very uh casual about their uh, internet security they are well on on that note uh, i think uh, we should run uh in in a heat map pattern uh through this next commercial and see what might happen to lurk on the other side beautiful, evocative fantasy maps redolent of medieval Italy? In sales technique, we call that an invitation for the listener to say yes. Because the latest Ask the Gown Kickstarter has what you seek, the Summerland City Map Project. Navigate Joe Dever's World of Magnamund, the setting for the Lone Wolf gamebooks. Made by cartographer Francesco Mattioli in close collaboration with Joe. And with Vincent Lazzari, devoted keeper of the Lone Wolf Flame. Born of Francesco's dream of creating city maps celebrating Lone Wolf and medieval Bologna. Are you saying that he based them on Earth? That's a yes, sayer of the saying, base it on Earth. Why, then, even if Lone Wolf is not your deal, you could use these stunning maps as a resource for any medieval or fantasy setting. You could not have said it better yourself. 
Choose between a single map of Home Guard or the collection of all ten maps. Follow the link in the show notes to the Summerlin City Map Kickstarter. Gain admission to our top secret Patreon installation alongside such backers as... Ryan Leibarger. Scott Herring. Timothy Corum. Todd McGowan. And Tony Kemp. The chutter of IBM Selectric Keys and the gurgle of mid-priced bourbon into a jelly jar welcome us once more to the writerly confines of the place in which we learn how to write good. And in How to Write Good, we will learn today about how to get out of things like this awkward introductory segment <laughs> and into a new segment. And in this segment, we're talking about scene transitions, specifically scene transitions, as Robin has established in his brand new book, Beating the Story. Robin, tell us about either Beating the Story or about scene transitions or, for extra credit, one and then transition to the another. Right. Well, I, I would be uh, ill-behooved if I did not mention that uh, the pre-order for Beating the Story is on, and so if you follow the link in the uh, show notes, you can take advantage of the print book pre-order and get the electronic version of the book immediately. Get that right away. Uh, so, uh, Beating the Story, uh, very briefly, is my uh, book of advice for uh, writers, and it's all about getting uh, deep into the uh, rhythm and components of your narrative, and uh, those of you who know Hamlet's hit points will know a part of the system, the, the beat system, and its tracking of emotional up and downs and the sort of uh, types of scenes that it identifies. But when I uh, chose to uh, take that system and apply it to the rest of fiction writing, as uh, many people over the years uh, urged me to do, uh, it occurred to me that there's a thing that you need to do in every other form of storytelling uh, that you don't have to pay much attention to at all, in role-playing, and that is the scene transition. That the way that scenes move from uh, one to another is as important in maintaining reader or viewer engagement as the emotional rhythm, if not more so. And that uh, there are some classic films, for example, that are knitted together through the skillfulness of their transitions, like uh, Citizen Kane, for example, which is a deeply fragmented uh, narrative nonetheless keeps you moving through the story because each of the uh, jumps from one scene to another is handled in a really elegant fashion that keeps you engaged and, and keeps you uh, interested. Uh, the uh, second X-Men film is on the surface not you know much better or worse than other X-Men films, but it's much more compelling just because the transitions within that film, the way that's presented, are uh, so much stronger than the other uh, uh, films around it, or well, not so much stronger, but definitely, you know, it's noticeable how much that just keeps you going from one moment to the next to the next without uh, taking a breath or stopping or allowing you to lose momentum. Now, momentum matters more in some narratives than others. Um, the sort of uh, techno thriller with superheroes of an X-Men film needs momentum uh, more than the retrospective story of a life, but even, you know, in Citizen Kane, uh, that um, is uh, more powerful because it keeps you engaged and keeps you going. So uh, as I started to think about this, I began to identify different types of scene transitions, which you mark on your scene map when you uh, create it as you're studying the story that you're creating or analyzing. And then you can start to think about whether that is the most appropriate or strongest transition to use, or whether there is a way that you can adjust your storytelling, uh, whether it's changing the plotting or, or changing where the scenes break into each other, that create that sense of momentum and make uh, it feel stronger. And so uh, can, I've conveniently given you a list of beating the story's various transition types. You have? Yes, and you can now prompt me on them so I can explain uh, how each of them works specifically. This is a little of the of, of the podcasting behind the scenes that our real fans crave and no <laughs> yeah. one else wants. They're very interested in what our notes look like. Right, yeah. They're, oh, God, they must be so beautiful. All right. Um, uh, they're bullet-pointed, and many of them have bolding. I can, I can reveal that at this time. Uh, the first kind of scene transition is the outgrowth, which uh, that's pretty much what it sounds like, right? Right. Uh, and this, I would argue, uh, particularly for genre writing, where suspense and flow is important, is 
the strongest transition. So this is a scene in which uh, the thing that happens in scene B arises directly out of a development that appears in scene A. So if it is you discover that there is an invisible assassin aboard the plane, and then your next scene is, oh, well, we have, once we land, we have to go to the library and research invisible <laughs> assassins. That's thing in scene A is then causing scene B. And so that gives you a really strong flow of cause and effect that keeps uh, the reader going and discourages the reader from setting the book down. Or in uh, a screenplay or a teleplay, it's even more important to keep uh, that sort of sense of uh, pacing up and an outgrowth is the obvious, uh, clearest, strongest way to do that. And related to an outgrowth is a continuation in which it's not even that something happened in the previous scene that changes your activity. It's just that you're still doing the activity, but in a different place. So if you're like chasing down a, a terrorist and you chased him through the mall and then you're in the new scene and you're chasing him through the train station, you're still chasing the terrorist. Nothing has changed. You just moved because the mall's only so big and you can only spend so many time, so much time in a mall before everyone gets bored. Right. Right. And uh, because continuation implies that it's something, an overall action that has already been set up. So if you, another example is it's a heist movie where they have to, uh, as they do in League of Gentlemen, uh, do a heist of a military base to get the guns in order to then go and get the bank robbery. Getting the guns doesn't cause the bank robbery, but it's a necessary step toward the bank robbery. So uh, you've got a bank robbery scene followed by a bank robbery scene. That's a continuation. Right. Uh, then the turn, same character, but doing something else. Uh, so while they were getting the guns, they discovered that there was an adorable orphan uh, being uh, molested, and they stop off to, to save the orphan from the bad person, right? Right. Uh, yes. And so, or, you know, or you go, you have to break from your planning of the robbery to go and uh, make sure that your, your girlfriend is happy or whatever. Right. So that uh, in most... Uh, and it's particularly in, in sort of a single character work where you're focused on one particular protagonist, it is uh, sometimes difficult to sustain an entire or rare to sustain an entire action that is entirely all one goal. Usually they have a couple of goals, which guess what? Come into conflict with one another. So that if you're hopping that character from the A plot to the B plot, that is often a uh, a turn. And a, a turn can also be a deliberate distraction or a red herring or the bad guys put a thing in the way that they have to deal with before they can get back to the other thing. Right. Yeah. Um, and as you say, you know, keeping your girlfriend sweet while you plan a bank robbery is the classic other thing you do in a noir is... Uh, everything will be great as long as your girlfriend doesn't get cold feet. Go talk her down. And, of course, you're like, well, something's going to happen. Girlfriend's going to get cold feet. That's how noir works. And right. uh, But we still and, have to have that scene And particularly if it comes up. as an interruption to the goal, right? That the, right. Yeah. Uh, so it's still theoretically in service to the goal, because, but it's something that's stopping you from uh, going ahead with your plan because you have to go over and attend to problem B. So, you know, you get a call that uh, your kid is sick at school. Uh, while you're trying to track down the penguin and then now you've got to, you know, go and, and get your kid out of school and that lets the penguin get away. And now, and, and, and so far we've been following one character and now we're going to do the thing that modern uh, fantasy uh, does. And I think in, in genre fiction, it begins with David Morell's uh, thrillers that you start swapping around viewpoints. Uh, but now it's of course, super common, certainly in Dracula, you have it, but this is the break. This is where we move from one identification character to another identification character. And in sort of, uh, not, um, not in epistolary novels, but certainly in sort of adventure novels, it, it didn't used to happen that you had two viewpoint characters who you followed unless someone was being really crazy and inventive. And now, uh, it's not a fantasy trilogy if there aren't 95 viewpoint characters, all of which you love equally. Right. And lots of ensemble shows do this as well. Or, uh, this is also pioneered in the sort of social novels where you you would follow a, a different set of characters through the course of, uh, of the novel that, you know, Tale of Two Cities obviously has right, protagonists. Yeah. Anything with multiple protagonists works this way. And the, uh, it is a, a costlier uh, transition, but it's the price of doing business if you're doing a multi-character novel where you're inside different characters' heads because every time you, you're basically breaking from one narrative and one person that you cared about and are invested in, and that's like you're, you're moved back to the other. And so uh, the uh, difficulty there is particularly acute during the opening where you have to set up all these different characters with all these different viewpoints with their different goals and then keep 
moving back and forth between them. Now, there are, uh, as with all of these breaks, it's not like some of them are bad and you shouldn't use them. Uh, there's some of them that you maybe want to avoid later on in the, in the going. But the uh, trick here is, is, or the advantage of this is that once one story, you know, needs to shift in time or starts to sort of lose tension for a little while, boom, you can bring in another character and uh, increase the tension. Or you start to, you know, what's What's up with uh, with Josie? We haven't seen her this episode. Oh, look, she's uh, uh, gone and found her her long lost father. Oh, this is interesting. So that uh, it's little bits of, uh, in a way, it sort of plays to the modern attention span. But so uh, again, super standard uh, transition and one that has uh, both its advantages and and disadvantages. So similar to the break where we move from one character to another character, we have the viewpoint transition where it's a whole new character that we haven't met yet that we have to sort of get to know. Right. And that's like a break, but we also have to introduce the character, right? Right. And so as I was saying at the beginning of a story, when you're introducing all the new characters, those are all actually viewpoint shifts. And the reason I marked that out is because it is much more uh, onerous uh, on the on the viewer's attention to introduce a brand new character uh, than it is to uh, reintroduce you to somebody who you already care about and are happy to be back with. And sometimes mm-hmm. you see, even in otherwise putatively single character, uh, character narratives, it will briefly move to another viewpoint character just because it needs to establish something. So weirdly, for example, in Dr. No, there's a point uh, sort of in the mid-action uh, where Strangways uh, becomes the you know one one of the uh, the functionaries suddenly becomes the viewpoint character and we're all of a sudden seeing his we're introducing Doctor No by showing the henchman's fear of Doctor No as a distant shadowy voice and uh, and then after that's established it's boom back to Bond and for the rest of it it's it's through Bond's point of view and you could argue that that is a uh, a sign of weak construction, but it works because there's something interesting and compelling going on, and you uh, you aren't used to the henchman being the viewpoint character, but it's done with sufficient elan that uh, the screenwriters and filmmaker get away with it. And also, it's a good way to establish menace. I mean, it, again, obviously, you can establish any number of things, but I think in terms of menace, um, because this is the sort of the... Um, uh, the, the the victim bit in the, in the in the monster movie where you get to know the the kids who are out camping or necking or whatever and then up oh, a monster but the real viewpoint character is going to be the sheriff or the uh, reporter or the FBI guy or whatever and he's the guy who's actually hunting them but you have to sort of briefly identify with that character so that you can understand the the threat because if our hero and the monster meet at the beginning, well, the movie's much shorter. So right. we have to have the monster's threat be established in some way other than the uh, our hero looking at the forensic report and saying, that is a monster. Right. And so in the aforementioned X-Files episode where uh, Mulder and Scully are hanging out at the hotel waiting for monsters to eat more people, uh, you might very well, in fact, do cut to the next victim who becomes your brief viewpoint character. And so each of those is a viewpoint shift, even if you have encountered that character previously as a witness who is being asked questions by Scully and Mulder. Right. Um, moving on there, we have uh, uh, the rhyme. And that is, uh, why don't you explain the rhyme rather than have me explain so, the so rhyme? So the rhyme is, is basically a way of covering a break to... Uh, give it some other sense of momentum and make it less jarring. And uh, you can also have rhymes uh, between uh, flashbacks and flash forwards, which we'll get to in a bit. But uh, the classic examples of these are in Citizen Kane, where there's like a one transition where it zooms in on a cockatoo's eye and then it irises out into something else. And there are a lot of, or, uh, you know, of course, the match cut in uh, 2001, where it jumps forward from the uh, the hominid period to the present day uh, by uh, having the bone uh, reveal itself as a, uh, uh, a spaceship. Any of those are uh, rhymes. Sort of, They call attention to the shift in a way that gives it an aesthetic uh, pleasure that you can just go, oh, that was great. And uh, you see it almost every week in, in Arrow, at least now in the episodes that have flashbacks in them, because they don't all in the current season. But there's a sort of a visual cue that connects the flashback to the main action. Right. You, 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 you'd zoom in on a glass of water and then zoom out and you're in the ocean, that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And now we have the meanwhile transition, which is like the break, but is 
a uh, different character, but happening at the same time, whereas a break is canonically later on, right? Right. So that th- this the idea is here that this is suggesting concurrent action. And so it could possibly be in a break that they're happening at the same time, but that's irrelevant to the shift from one to the other. But here we're cross-cutting essentially between uh, two parallel actions occurring uh, at the same time that relate to one another in some way. And you need to establish that they're happening at the same time by saying something like, meanwhile, or giving a Chiron, like in a spy show, you right. know, it'll give the, the, the date and timestamp, or just have, you know, the character, you know, make a call, and then the other character is tapping that call. Yeah, and the, it's the, like, the comm Aha. system uh, thing where, uh, you know, there's a, an infiltration going on, and you're seeing different teams going in at different places, and there's a, a coordinator. Again, that's on almost every episode of of Arrow breaks down that way. Right. Uh, the flashback. I think we all know what a flashback is. Is there something special or weird or goofy about a flashback? Uh, no, you just want to note it that you're doing it because uh, right. it, it, like a shift in viewpoint, a shift in time has a disorienting effect. And so uh, you want to uh, be aware that you're doing it and know that you have to reorient the viewer very quickly or reader very quickly in the fact that it's a different time. And and so as we've discussed, some of these can like uh, be, you know, layered onto each other. So we've talked about flashbacks that rhyme in Arrow. Uh, obviously, a flashback is, is often going to be a, a break or a turn. It's going to have some other sort of quality to the uh, to the flashback rather than just moving back to a previous time that is also, it'd be hard to make that an outgrowth I think, yes. uh, unless you're doing some kind of weird quantum entanglement science fiction. Yes, basically, all uh, most of these are subsets of the of, of the break or the turn that you want to mark out even more precisely to know right. that that's what you're doing. Okay. You're doing a special version of that. Now, the system doesn't worry too much about you know what's a subset of what because it's not really relevant right. to the writing. Yeah, process. You, you and you just have to know you need to hit the the mark for each kind of transition regardless of how many you're doing at the same time right um and then of course once you flash back you have to return back to the regular time uh that's the return scene yep right? uh, otherwise self-explanatory um and except that that break is a little less uh taxing because the viewer is typically happy to be moving back to the main action. right yeah they're like okay now we're now we found out what happened in the 13th century we're ready for modern times again and then uh the flash forward which is the flashback but forward Right, right. Rare, but sufficiently uh, extant that it needs to be uh, noted, and that's I would argue even more uh, disorienting uh, than the flashback because it's it's weird. And you see that a lot in in science fiction, but not as much in like thrillers and uh, mysteries and things like that. In in more normal sorts of genre fiction, I don't think you'd see it in a romance. Although that'd be an interesting way to do a romance. Like you you start out with uh, the characters um, uh, uh, seeing each other across the coffee shop, and he hates her or she hates him, and you flash forward immediately to their kid's fourth birthday, and you're like, right. wow, that's an odd thing. And then you go back and sort of set up how they how they did that. I think you see that maybe in one or two of the more uh, interesting rom-coms, but it's, it's not a standard format in anything except really science fiction or historicals, right? Yeah, pretty much. And arrival is a great example of, there's a bunch of disguised flash forwards that you don't don't know. That's been out for a while. You should have seen it already. You should have. It's true. That's not too big a spoiler because you don't know what is right. But the flash forward, like I say, is it's, it's not common, but with a lot of these, you can, you can sort of look at them and say, all right, I'm not going to write a flash forward in this, but what would a flash forward look like? And maybe that can give you some uh, dimensionality or some parallax with which to look at the story you are constructing, even if it's just good old proper thriller outgrowth continuation turn continuation outgrowth continuation turn outgrowth continuation like right. like like books ought to be back in the day and, and although the system in beating the story is not proscriptive it's meant to be descriptive it's meant to help you analyze what it is that you're doing and in few instances do i uh you know suggest that you should never do x or y but you probably don't want to do a viewpoint transition in the middle of your climax, for example, you don't want to, if you shift <laughs> right. suddenly to a yeah. character who's never been the viewpoint character before, uh, that's going to be uh, jarring. It's the sort of thing where if you try it, it'd better pay off. Right. But uh, that can give you a challenge, right? That you can look at how the, how things are usually done. And if you can think of a brilliant way to make that payoff, you're going to have something uh, really special that uh, somebody on a future segment of how to write good is going to describe and tell you how it works. And on that note, it's time for us to, uh, as an outgrowth, I see that there's an urgent need for another segment. 
See what I did there? Yeah. Uh, time to turn. When I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, guns... And opera! Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. The clacking of time gears and the whirring chronotons tell us that once more we're standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which of course is the conveyance that Time Corporate uses to rocket Ken back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, a Patreon backer, David Shaw, wants to know why Ken's time machine was somehow involved in the Agatha Christie disappearance. So this means, Ken, you uh, uh, took the machine back in time to December in 1926, because as people who know uh, this mystery about a mystery writer, uh, Agatha Christie, at the uh, beginning uh, height of her career, she had an incredibly long, successful career, but by this point, uh, she had her sixth novel out, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, one of her iconic ones, and it was a bestseller, so people knew who she was, and uh, she disappeared, and there was a, a nationwide manhunt with thousands of police officers looking for her, uh, she uh, said goodbye to her daughter and her husband and left her home for a drive. Her car was found in a, a rem remote location, looked like maybe there'd been a, a crash into a tree. And uh, she surfaced only 11 days later under a different name. A name uh, her name used the surname of her husband's mistress. And she was found at a party in the Swan Hydro Hotel in Harrogate. And uh, she had adopted this other identity and... Uh, there was some confusion, and people realized she was Agatha Christie, and she either realized or acknowledged that she was Agatha Christie, and it was a, a, a big question that still uh, hangs over uh, her career. Uh, at, at some point, there were some special guest investigators got drawn in, uh, Conan Doyle and Dorothy Sayers. Uh, Dorothy Sayers took a look at uh, a nearby uh, spring called the Silent Pool, where uh, allegedly a couple of children had drowned, and maybe there was a a weird eerie, if not paranormal, element going on here, and uh, she, she got a book out of it. Uh, Conan Doyle, of course, uh, did the rigorous Sherlock Holmes thing, which is he took her glove to a medium to see if there's any information from the spirit world. <laughs> uh, that didn't pan out. And you know what? Normally, you and I will make fun of mediums here, but the medium said, Agatha Christie is alive, and she's confused. And you know what? That turned out to be true. She was right. That panned out. Yep. Well done, medium. Now, if you know your, your Doctor <laughs> Who time travel, according to the David Tennant era Doctor Who, Agatha Christie disappeared to deal with some giant wasp aliens. Yes. But, but you can have a different story to tell. Yes. Um, I would like to begin by saying that uh, the mystery of finding Ag Agatha Christie at Harrogate in Yorkshire, when she had left a note to her secretary saying, I'm going to go to Yorkshire maybe makes the British not look like the legend of efficiency they might be, unless she was in time. She'd been right. taken to go somewhere else in time. Be because a, a fun hater, if I may break in to, to provide the fun haters point of view, as you do, uh, th there've been numerous theories over the years. One of which is that she entered a fugue state and uh, became confused as the medium suggested and switched identities for 11 days. Uh, that seems weird, but that's something that, you know, happened to Stephen Fry once in, 1995, he blanked out and, and found himself in Bruges. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're going to become disoriented, go where the Lambics are. That's always right. My yeah, that's that's an excellent plan, frankly. Another one is just that uh, she was uh, suicidal, but then became ashamed and uh, that this was a, a cover story. Or 
uh, one might also indicate just that uh, she uh, was mad at her husband and wanted to be someone different for a while and, and kept at it. And, and wouldn't mind if he was being thought of as a murderer for uh, a week or two. Right. Uh, but that's that's the fun hater point of view in which just yeah. something perfectly explicable happened that we continue to describe as a mystery. Right. Well, the sort of thing is that um, when you involve Agatha Christie in something, you know that it is uh, literary. You know that it is uh, going to involve uh, a possible murder or a possible puzzle. And you know that at the end, uh, society will go along completely as it was before with no changes and that's the kind of discipline we like to see in a time agent it would be very comfortable right so this was basically um they asked me uh, every now and again i'm asked to mentor new time agents and uh agatha christie came up on the radar as a possible time agent um successful writer uh, a fan of the occult and of egyptology fits the profile perfectly so the novelist uh, Peter Aykroyd had, it turned out, committed possibly a murder or possibly a suicide. Very technically confusing. Very hard to tell. Lots of Hawksmoor churches and sacred geometry tied in. And I figured, well, let's get Agatha Christie down here, see if she can untangle this, see if she can talk him down, solve the uh, the murder of Peter Aykroyd, because she uh, just sort of stumped for plots and needed to get out of her rut. Right. So I showed up in at Styles. and murders. She was, well, she became an export in Ackroyds and Murders because I took her out of time, took her off for 10 days. We solved the mystery of Peter Ackroyd. She wrote the mystery of Roger Ackroyd while solving the mystery of Peter Ackroyd. And then Agatha Christie, and I don't want to say that this is a thing that time people do. She gave the manuscript to her younger self so that it could be published. So Agatha Christie, although she passed the exam, she failed the veil out. And so she did not actually get recruited by Time Incorporated. And that's what happened. Now, I, I want to, first of all, feel that uh, the esteemed novelist Peter Aykroyd was not up to, he wasn't up to no good, was he? Wasn't he? No, no, no. He was, yeah. he was engaged in a arch literary jape, I think at the expense of Martin Amos. I'm not sure okay. exactly. But it, it, was a, it was a system by which there was a duplicate, it was found dead, and we didn't know if it was Peter Aykroyd, we didn't know what was going on. It was, so um, it was perhaps it was, a, a golem of, of Peter Aykroyd? Could have been a golem, could have been a, a, a device made of pout, could have been an android from the future, uh, could have been a, 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 a one of the wooden dummies from the guild hall. Uh, with, with a guy like Peter Aykroyd, you, you can never be sure, and that's why we needed Agatha Christie to sort of, you know, put the, put the screws to it. But no, Peter Aykroyd, it was just good-natured literature very fun gone wrong there was no actual murder involved so m much like the fake mystery that you created as a veil out for having solved the actual mystery right exactly um uh, so um uh, uh, no nothing nothing untoward occurred except perhaps a great deal of embarrassment uh, to british authorities and uh, agatha christie then um came up with a sort of notion of murder of roger Ackroyd. uh as a uh, sort of a riff on on what happened with Peter Aykroyd. Um, now, did it turn out that all of his characters conspired jointly to kill him? Uh, <laughs> no, that uh, actually happened on a different occasion, um, uh, and that was uh, it, and this is something that that uh, again Agatha Christie a little sloppy on the on the tradecraft. The hotel room at the, in uh, in uh, Istanbul um, uh, that she wrote the Murder at the Orient Express in. Uh, a psychic said that the key to her disappearance was at the Pira Palace Hotel in her, in room 411, which was the room that she stayed in, and they dug up the floor, and it turned out there was a, a, an iron key there that opened a box, and the Pira Palace Hotel said, we're only going to turn that key for $2 million cold, and uh, uh, the, the, the TV company stumped up the money, and then it turned out it was a scam, uh, because I... Uh, took the stuff out of the box. And that I think was the, um, uh, uh, the attempt by a bunch of characters of, uh, Peter Aykroyd's to sort of get into the, the, the hole that Agatha Christie left when she gave herself the, um, the mystery and, and get together and murder him. So Agatha Christie gets a second novel out of it, which seems a little unfair, frankly, to me, but there you go. That's just, right. that's the breaks of the time business. Now, um, I have cheated a little bit and I am looking at the, at the dossier. And looking mm -hmm. at how much time we have left in this segment. And I realized, looking at the dossier, that you did actually team up with her another time uh, to prevent the murder of Dan Aykroyd. Uh, Dan how Aykroyd. Did that, how did that go? Um, well, that was a failure. 
I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, Dan Aykroyd actually died, uh, I think, uh, like 11 years ago. It was, it was a while ago. Um, and now we just have a tulpa of Dan Aykroyd just sort of wandering around guest starring in things. It was, it's, it's not our finest work, but we right. saved Bill Murray. So that's something. That's right? important. Yeah. But Dan Aykroyd, in fairness, was being murdered by, uh, John Belushi's tulpa that was left over. Uh, from all of the um, uh, all of the cocaine that he left uh, scattered over the city of Chicago oh, while filming the Blues the Brothers, so he's a coke tulpa, and so they just want to like grab you and talk to you for hours about their non-existence. It's it's not impossible that Dan Aykroyd inhaled the cocaine tulpa that nearly killed him, uh, but yeah, we we tried to stop the murder of Dan Aykroyd, and that that turned out to be a situation. Uh, that we had to draw a curtain over because, of course, since um, uh, we failed, we had to uh, create a whole different cover story for that one. And uh, uh, that's where um, I think uh, Agatha Christie got a little sick of all of this elaborate Ackroyd uh, solving. She and established her no Ackroyd's policy after that. Her no Ackroyd's policy thereafter, yes. Um, uh, and so the, uh, uh, the, the murder of Dan Ackroyd remains... A, a shameful blot on the work of um, uh, on, on the work of Time Incorporated. Uh, well, if there's a mysterious resurgence in Dan Aykroyd's career, uh, we will note that he has been unmurdered, and uh, mm-hmm. presumably that was uh, you and Agatha taking another run at it. Taking another run at it, Tommy and Tuppence style. So now we've cleared everything up, uh, made the story much simpler. It's time for us to exit and uh, make plans to return next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. Impro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Make your every entrance smooth alongside such backers as... Andrew Laliberti. Andrew Miller. Steve K. Alexander Zimmerman. And Andrew Jones. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel on other Erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. New designs include... This bicycle does not make toast. And nod knowingly if you're a tulpa. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>